purple.com <coughs> sleep better for less number one in customer satisfaction two years in a row with mattress online by JD Power Award pick the right mattress for you the purple mattress dual layer comfort form purple hybrid breathable responsive support purple hybrid premier less pressure for dreamy floaty yes adjustable base to make it possible to work read and lounge in bed built up for bundle up for big savings 10% off premium bedding and cushion bundles these mattresses optimally place grid and softer form for best support for little sleepers enjoy no pressure support with free sheets and two pillows on select mattresses purchase up to 247 value sleepy jones and purple pajamas all day comfort with soft red inspired pajamas while you worry about breakfast products Purple Harmony Pillow, Double Seat Cushion, Purple Plus Gravity Weighted Blanket, Purple Duvet. Choose purple for no pressure support for everybody, 30 plus shares and 35 patents. Comfort Gel Grade Technology originally created to make wheelchairs more comfortable than they remembered beds. People love purple, period. Positively, P-A-W-S. Simply, comfy even for your fur baby. had a happy and wonderful Thanksgiving. Today's true crime story is Unsolved, the Axeman of New Orleans. The Axeman of New Orleans was an American serial killer active in New Orleans, Louisiana, and surrounding communities including Gretna. <coughs> From May 1918 to October 1919, press reports during the height of public panic about the killings mentioned familiar, similar murders as early as 1911. But recent searches have, re- have called these reports into question. The X-Men was never identified and the murders remained unsolved. Background As the killer's epithet implies, the victims usually were attacked with an axe which often belonged to the victims themselves. In most cases, a panel on the back door of the home was removed by a chisel which along with the panel was left on the floor near the door. The intruders then attacked one or more of the residents with either an axe or a straight razor the crimes were not motivated by robbery, and the perpetrator never removed them, removed items from his victims' homes. The majority of the Axeman victims were Italian immigrants or Italian Americans, leading many to believe that the crimes were ethnically motivated. Many multimedia, many media outlets sensationalized this aspect of the crimes, even suggesting mafia involvement, despite lack of evidence. Some crime analysts have suggested that the killings were related to sex and that the murder murderer was perhaps a status specifically seeking female victims. Criminologists Colin and Damon Wilson hypothesized that the X-Men killed male victims only when they inspected his attempts to murder women. Supported by cases in which the woman of the household was murdered but not the man. A less plausible theory is that the killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music suggested by a letter attributed to the killer in which he stated that he would spare the lives of those who played jazz in their homes. The Axeman was not caught or identified and his crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. The murderer's identity remains unknown to this day, although various possible identifications of varying plausibility 
have been proposed. On March 13, 1919, a letter purporting to be from the excellent was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again at 15 minutes past midnight. Uh, at 15 minutes past midnight on the night of March 19th, but would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing. That night, all of New Orleans dance halls were filled to capacity, and professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around town. There were no murders that night. The Axeman's Letter Hot as hell, March 13th, 1919 Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axeman they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible. Even as there, even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon hot as hell. And what you Orle- Orleanians and your foolish police call the axe man. When I say fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his aesthetic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them, but tell them to be where let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axemen. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleans think of me as a modest, as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much more, much worse if I wanted to. If I wished I could pay a visit to your city every night at will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 Earth time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infant mercy, I am going to make a little proposition for you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the neither, nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time. I have just mentioned if everyone has a jazz band going well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your young people too do not jazz it out on that specific time. If there be any, we'll get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it will, that it may go well with thee. I have, I have been an, <coughs> I have been and and am and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm. Often, the actman. Suspects. Crime writer Colin Wilson speculates the axeman could have been Joseph Mom. Humphrey, a man shot to death in Los Angeles in December 1920 by the widow of Mike Pepitone, the Axeman's last known victim. Wolf's theory has been widely repeated in other true crime books and websites. However, true crime writer Michael Newton searched New Orleans and Los Angeles public police and court records as well as 
newspaper archives and failed to find any evidence of man with the name Joseph Lomfrey or a similar name having been assaulted or killed in Los Angeles. Newton was also not was also not able to find any information that Mrs. Pipito identified some sources as Esther Albano and the others simply as a woman who claimed to be Pipito's widow, was arrested, tried, or convicted for such a crime, or indeed had been in California. Newton notes that Momfrey was not an unusual surname in New Orleans at the time of the crime. It appears that there actually may have been an individual named Joseph Momfrey or Momfrey in New Orleans who had a criminal history and who may have been connected with organized crime. However, local records for the period are not extensive enough to allow confirmation of this or to positively identify the individual. Most of this mission is an urban legend and there is no more evidence now on the identity of the killer than there was at the time of the crimes. Two of the alleged early victims of the accident, an Italian couple named Shambra, were shot by an intruder in their lower ninth ward home in the early morning hours of May 16, 1912. The male Shambra survived while his wife died. <coughs> in this abrupt chance, the prime suspect is referred to by the name of Momfrey more than once. While radically different than the X-Men's usual modus operandi, if Joseph Momfrey was indeed the X-Men, the Chambras may well have been early victims of the future serial killer. According to, Doc, according to scholar Richard Warner, the chief suspect of the crime was Frank Doc Mumphrey, 1875-1921, who used the alias Leon Joseph Mumphrey Manfrey. Victims Joseph Magill was an Italian, Italian grocer who was attacked on May 23, 1918, while sleeping alongside his wife Catherine at their home on the corner of Upper Lawton and Magnolia Streets, where they conducted a barroom and grocery. The killer broke into the home and then proceeded to, cu- to cut the victim's throats with a straight razor. Upon leaving the bat, he, upon leaving, he bashed her head with an axe, perhaps in order to conceal the real cause of death. Joseph survived the attack, but died minutes after being discovered by his brothers Jake and Andrew Maggio. Catherine died prior to the brothers' arrival in the apartment. Law enforcement agents found the bloody clothes of the murderer as they had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene. A complete search of other probes was not completed by police after the bodies were moved, yet later the bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. Police ruled out robbery as motivation for the attacks as many invaluables left in plain sight were not stolen by the intruder. The razor used to kill the couple was found to belong to Andrew Maggio, the brother of the deceased who conducted a barber shop on Camp Street. His employee Esteban Torres told police that Maggio had removed the razor from the shop two days prior to the murder, explaining that he had wanted to have a nick torn from the blade. Maggio, who lived in the adjoining apartment to his brother's residence, discovered his slain brother and sister-in-law roughly two hours after the gruesome attacks that occurred upon hearing strange grunting noises through the wall. Maggio blamed his failure to hear any noise related to the attacks that occurred in the early morning and on his intoxicated state, and he returned home after a night of celebration prior to his departure to join the Navy police. However, we were nonetheless surprised that he failed to 
feared the intruder as they made a forced entry into the home. Andrew Mega became the police chief's process in the crime, yet was released after admission were unable to break down his statement as well as his account of the unknown man who was supposedly seen looking near the residence prior to the murders. Catherine Mager was the wife of Joseph Mager. Her throat was cut so deeply that her head was nearly severed from her shoulders. Louis Besumer and his mistress Harriet Lowe were attacked in the early morning hours of June 27, 1918 in the quarters at the back of his grocery, <coughs> which is located at the corner of Dorgan North and La Harp Streets. Besumer was struck with a hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a possible skull fracture. <coughs> Lowell was hacked over the left ear and found unconscious when police arrived at, scene, at the scene. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by John Zanka, a driver of bakery wagon who had come to the grocery in order to make a routine delivery. Zanka found both Besumer and Lowell in a puddle of blood polluting from their heads. <coughs> the axe which had belonged to Besumer himself was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Besumer later stated to police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with a hatchet. Almost immediately, police arrested potential suspect Lewis Obikon, a then 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed in Besumer's store just a week before the attacks, no evidence existed which could have proved the man guilty. Yet police arrested him nonetheless, stating that Obikon had offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Shortly after the attempted murder, Lowell stated that she remembered having been attacked by a mulatto man yet her statement was discounted by police due to her disillusioned state. Memory was said that to be the only possible exp- explanation for the text, yet no money was or values were removed from the couple's home. Obacom was later released as police were unable to gather sufficient evidence to hold him accountable for the crimes. Media attention soon returned to Besumer himself as a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were discovered in a, a trunk at the man's home. Police suspected that Besumer was a German spy and government official began in a full investigation of the potential espionage. Weeks later, after going in and out, in and out of conscious, Harriet Lowell told police that she thought Besumer was a fast German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Two days later, Besumer was released and two lead investigators of the case were demoted due to unsuccessful police work. Besumer was once again arrested in August 1918 after Harriet Lowe, who lay dying in a charity hospital after a failed surgery stated that it was he who had attacked him more than a month previously with her with his hatchet. He was charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919. After a 10 minute jury deliberation, Harriet Lowe was attacked while in bed with Louis Besumer. As is mentioned previously, Lowe was was hacked above her left ear and found unconscious at the scene of the crime before she was rushed to charity hospital. Lowell became the center of a media circus as she continually made scandals and often false statements related to both the attacks and the character of Lois Besumer, some of which are described in the preceding description. The Times became a sensationalist Lowell had 
In her hospital condition, Apollo discovered that she was not the wife of a swimmer, but his mistress. As Charity Hospital Source discovered the scandal when Bissimer asked to be dis- directed to the room of Mrs. Harriet Lowell and was inevitably denied access to, as no woman by the, that name was a patient. Bissimer's legal wife arrived from Cincinnati in the days when they, immediately following the discovery, which further inflamed the ongoing drama. Lowell further, further gained immediate attention as she repeatedly made statements which voiced her dislike the new of the New Orleans Chief of Police, as well as her reluctance to comply with police questioning. After the truth of her marital status was revealed publicly, Lowell told reporters from the Times for KN that she would no longer aid the police in their investigation, as she suspected that it had been Chief Moody who first informed the press of the scandal. Despite the scandal and her delirious statements, which suggested that Ms. Zimmer was a German spy, Lowell returned to the home she shared with Zimmer, Zimmer weeks after the attack. Lowell died August 5, 1918, just two days after doctors performed surgery and assisted to repair her partially paralyzed face. Just prior to her death, Lowell told authorities that she suspected it was Louis Bissimer who had attacked her. Anna Schneider was attacked in the early evening hours of August 5, 1918. The eight months pregnant 28-year-old of Amaya Street awoke to find a dark figure standing over her and was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open. Her face was completely covered in blood. Mrs. Schneider was discovered as a midnight by her husband, Ed Schneider, who was returning late from work. Schneider claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home besides six or seven dolls that had been in his wallet. The windows and doors of the apartment appeared to have been for, appeared to have not been forced open, and authorities came to the conclusion that the woman was most likely attacked with the lamp that had been on a nearby table. James Gleason, who police said was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly after Schneider was found. Gleason was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated that her, he originally ran from authorities because he had so often been arrested. Lead investors began to publicly speculate that the attack was related to the previous instance involving Bissumer and Maggio. Joseph Romano was an elderly man living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, on August 10, 1918. <coughs> Pauline and Mary awoke to the sound of a commotion in the adjoining room where their uncle resided upon re- entering the room. The sisters discovered that their uncle had taken a serious blow to the head, which resulted in two open cuts. The assailant was fleeing the scene as they arrived, yet the girls were unable to distinguish that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived, yet died two days later due to severe head trauma. The home had been ransacked, yet no items were stolen from Romano. Authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. The Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city and with residents living in constant fear of an axeman attack. Police received a slew of reports in which civilian citizens claimed to have been to have seen an axeman looking in New Orleans neighborhoods. A few men even called to report that they had 
has access in their backyard. John Danatonio, a then retired Italian detective, made public statements in which he hypothesized that the man who had committed the acts by murders was the same who had killed several individuals in 1911. <coughs> the retired detective cited similarities in the manner in which the two sets of homicides had been committed as a reason as reason to assume they had been conducted by the same individual. D'Antonio described the potential killer as an individual of dual status who killed out of motive who killed without motive. This type of individual D'Antonio stated could very likely have been a normal law abiding citizen who was often overcome by an overwhelming desire to kill. He later went on to describe the killers as a real life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Charles Cortemiglia was an immigrant who lived with his wife Rosie and infant daughter Mary on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street in Gretna, Louisiana, a New Orleans suburb across the Mississippi River. On the night of March 10, 1919, screams were heard coming from the Cormiglia residence, grocer I Orlando Giordano rushed across the street to investigate upon his arrival. Giordano noticed that Charles Cortemiglia, his wife, and the daughter had all been attacked by the unknown intruder. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching her deceased daughter. Charles lay on the floor, bleeding profusely. The couple was rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was discovered that both had suffered skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the house, but a panel on the back door had been chiseled away, and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles was released two days later while his wife remained in the care of doctors. Again, upon gaining full consciousness, Rosie made claims that 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 I Orlando Jordano and his 18-year-old son Frank were responsible for the attack. I Orlando, a 69-year-old man, was in top four health to have committed the crimes. Frank Jordano, more than six feet tall, was weighing over and weighing over 200 pounds, would have been too large to fit through the panel of the back door. Charles Cortemiglia vehemently denied his wife's claims, yet police nonetheless arrested the two and charged him with murder. The man would later be found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang and his father to life. <coughs> In prison, Charles Cortemiglia divorced his wife after the trial. Almost a year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two of jealousy and spite. As Josie, in spite, her statement was the only evidence of the evidence against the Jordanas, and they were released from jail shortly after. Rosie Cortemiglia was the wife of labor Charles Cortemiglia. She was attacked alongside her husband on March 10, 1919. <coughs> While sleeping with her baby in her arms, she was badly wounded by the axeman that survived the incident. Mary Cortemigli, the two-year-old daughter of Charles and Rosie Cortemigli, was she was killed while sleeping in her mother's arms with a single blow to the back of the neck while she and her parents were attacked on March 10, 1919. Steve Boca, a grocer, was attacked in his bedroom as he slept by an axe-wheeling intruder on August 10, 1919. Boca awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Upon regaining consciousness, Boca ran to the street to investigate the intrusion and found that his head had been cracked open. The grocer ran to the home of his neighbor, Frank Genusa, 
where he lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home, yet once again a panel from the back door of the home had been chiseled away. Bunker recovered from his injuries, but could not remember any details of the trauma. This attack took place after the emergence of the infamous Ackman letter. Sarah Lawman was attacked on the night of September 3rd, 1919. Nineteen neighbors came to check on the young woman who had lived alone and <coughs> <coughs> broke into the home when Lawman did not answer. He discovered the ninth-year-old laying unconscious in her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. The intruder had entered the apartment through an open window and attacked the woman with a blunt object. A body axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building. Lawman had recovered from injuries yet couldn't recall any details from the attack. Mike Pepitone was attacked on the night of October 27, 1919. His wife was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of his bedroom just as a large, axe-wielding man was fleeing the scene. Mike Pepitone had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood splatter covered the majority of the room, including a painting of the Virgin Mary. Mrs. Pepitone, the mother of six children, would now describe any characteristics of the killer. The Pepitone... The Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged Axeman attacks. In popular culture, in 1919, local tune writer Joseph Davila wrote the song The Mr. Axeman's Jazz Don't Scare Me Papa, published by New Orleans based World Music Publishing Company. The cover depicted a family playing music with frightened looks on their faces. The 1945 book, Gumbo Yaya, a collection of Louisiana folk tales, includes a chapter on the actual title of Axeman's Jazz, which sparked renewed interest in the murders. The book also reproduced the cover of the 1919 sheet music. The story rock band Beasts of Bourbon released an album in 1984 called The Axeman's Jazz. Writer Julie Smith used a fictionalized version of the X-Men's events in her 1991 novel, The X-Men's Jazz. The X-Men's kills were also referred to in the short story Mussolini and the X-Men's Jazz by Poppy Z. Brett, published in 1997. In Chuck Law in the X 2005 novel Haunted, the X Men mentioned in, is mentioned in Sister Vigilante's short story. The Jill's own song Death Jazz by Las Vegas Progressive Rock Band One Ten Project parallels a story of the X Men. <coughs> a sentence from the X Men's letter to the Times Picayune is spoken at the beginning of Bela Basilia sung Tunstall and California Tunstall and Californian head up. Christopher Farnworth's 2012 novel Red, White, and Blood Son of Miss Murder Spirit called the Boogeyman, which is was which has inhabited numerous parts throughout history, including the X-Men of New Orleans. Ray Celestin's 2014 novel The X-Men of Jazz is a fictionalized version of the X-Men of New Orleans case. In American Horror Story, Coven, starting with episode of The X-Men Cometh, The X-Men is portrayed by Danny Houston. The X-Men is mentioned in Season 3, Episode 5, and Season 4, Episode 6 of the originals. 
the excellence of trade in Hildred Rex's short story, A Slicking Agent of the Devil at 3 a.m., Opus 1 of the Dark Fiction Anthology, The Egg, My Fruit of Murder, A True Crime, Podcast Cover Story of the Axeman on the 60th episode titled Jazzit. Stuff You Missed in History, Class did a two part miniseries in the <coughs> Axeman, in which they toyed with the idea of his murdered axe having begun prior to 1918. Unsolved Murders of True Crime podcast did a three part miniseries in the Axeman of New Orleans, ending with their opinions of who the hosts think were responsible. And that's why we drink a paranormal and true crime podcast did an episode of the Axeman on its 39th episode, A Girl Named German and La La Land One and a Half. On the 13th, Ayes Regan released a song, Axeman, who tells of the crime, Buzzbeat Unsolved, a YouTube, a YouTube series that delves into unsolved true crime cases and the supernatural explores stories and theories regarding the Axeman. In Season 2, Episode 1, The Terrifying Axeman of New Orleans. Alan G. Guthrie, author and historian, presented a comprehensive profile of the Axeman murders in his book, Italian Louisiana History, Heritage and Tradition, published in 2014. Last week, tonight, with John Oliver, a new satire program mentioned the Axeman on Episode 13 of Season 6, titled Medical devices. John Oliver gave a brief history of the Axeman after showing a device sales team celebrating the successful numbers for a hip device, which would later be called the celebration of the celebration was Mardi Gras themed and included the man dressed up as the Axeman. Bon Bon Vivant, an indie gypsy band from New Orleans, released the song The Jazz Axeman, Squirrel Nut Zippers, and Axe. American Jazz Band released a song called X-Man Jazz Don't Scare Me Papa on their 2018 album Beasts of Burgundy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Unsolved Case of the X-Man of New Orleans. Have a good week and stay safe.